that when we confess the creed, when we say it together, which we're going to do a little bit later in our service, we are saying words that have been said by people across space, across time, across nationality, across ethnicity for the last 2,000 years. And what we've also talked about is that this creed is something that's helpful for us to study because there are times in our lives uh, where the life of faith feels like being tossed back and forth in a storm. Maybe not just the life of faith where life feels like that. Whether it's questions and doubts, whether it's circumstances or suffering, that we are constantly pushed and plowed pulled, rolled, and rocked uh, by the waves of this life. And at times, it can feel like we're about to capsize or crash into the rocks. And the Apostles' Creed is like an anchor that we drop down, that it connects to the bedrock of Scripture, and that it holds us steady in the midst of all of those waves. I want you to think with me for a minute about renovating a house. One of my favorite things to do is to walk through houses in East Nashville that are in various states of being built. It makes my wife very uncomfortable, but I've been told it's okay. And what happens when people are renovating a house, right, that they, they have this picture of, of, of expanding, of changing, of making the house better in some way. But the first thing that has to happen for the renovation to take place is the house has to be stripped down, doesn't it? Taken down to the studs. And as that process is happening, what, what the people doing the renovation have to be very aware of is where the load-bearing walls are in the house, right? Because you can take a lot of things down, but there are certain walls, there are certain structures that if you mess with them, you have now destroyed the structural integrity of the home. And that whatever you build back in its place, though it may be beautiful, is actually going to be dangerous and not last very long. when we study the Apostles' Creed, what we're studying is the load-bearing walls of the Christian faith. That what we're acknowledging is that there are gonna be times where what we believe about God is, is challenged, or even what we believe about God may change. You may be here this morning uh, and be in the, uh, your own process of renovating the house of faith that you were living in. Maybe you're asking a lot of questions about what should I believe about God? That's an important process. And what's it, one of the things that's important of to be aware of in that process are where are the load-bearing walls? What are the things that you don't want to challenge or change in the midst of that renovation for fear of undermining the structural integrity of the house that you want to live in afterwards? So knowing the creed helps us know what are those load-bearing walls that are a part of the Christian faith. And we started with the statement, I believe. And what we acknowledge is that everyone believes something. And then the next week we talked about, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. That, there, that what we believe in is, is a God who has created and that because God has made us, we're made with a purpose, with an end in mind. And that though we have rebelled against that purpose in our lives, God, being almighty, did not use his almightiness against us, but used it to serve us. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ,
his only son. Our Lord. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And we're going to break it up. How many chunks do you think we're going to break it into? Three, right? Okay, you guys know. So this is going to be the first chunk. We're going to talk about Jesus, okay? Then we're going to talk about Christ, his only son. And then we're going to talk about our Lord. So that's where we're going this morning. But what we believe is that while the creed is helpful, right, while it's an anchor in the seas, that we're, while, uh, these stormy seas, while it tells us what the load-bearing walls are in the Christian faith, that the foundation of our faith, faith, wow, the bedrock that our anchor is being thrown into is scripture. And so we're not just gonna preach the creed, we're gonna talk about how scripture sh- shapes this belief where we get it from. So we have a reader this morning. I have left my notes. I've forgotten who our reader is. Okay, it's Savannah. Great. So Savannah is coming up, and Savannah is going to read for us out of Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. This is the story of Jesus' transfiguration. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew 17. It will also be up on the screen. Or if you have your Bible on your phone, which a lot of people do these days, you can find it there as well. So this is Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That as almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, that you desire a relationship with us, Lord, and that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and Lord, through the way that you use your word to bring those things to light in our hearts. And we pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first, the first word of this we're gonna talk about, the first thing we're gonna talk about is Jesus. Okay, and we see in Matthew 17, verse one, uh, that Jesus is treated here as a real person. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now this may seem self-evident to you if you've been around church for a while, but, but what we are reading here in Matthew 17 is an account of a historical person whose name was Jesus. That's a foundational element of what uh, we're called to believe as Christians, is that there is a, a human person who was named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, right, that's his hometown, and that he lived and walked and breathed on this earth. 
that there is this historical figure who existed in the same stream of time and reality that we are currently living in. That the same chain of cause and effect that we experience in our day-to-day life was the same chain that goes all the way back to when Jesus was here on earth. That Jesus was a, a, a real human who existed. And his existence is, is beyond doubt. There are many people who doubt his claims, right? Who don't believe those. But almost without exception, the scholars kind of across the critical world will acknowledge that there was a person named Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth who walked on the earth. And no one disputes that the early church taught the same thing that the Christ that they worshiped, they believed him to be the Christ of history. Not just an idea of goodness or a representation of love, but that he has, he has been believed to be a, a true person throughout all the history of the church. And that this human person, Jesus, is the person who's attested to in scripture. In the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, that those narratives are a true and accurate, a historical account of his life. Now, of course, they're more than a simple, straightforward history. They don't start, well, they do start, some of them, with Jesus being born and with Jesus dying, but they don't follow the typical way that we think about a biography unfolding. But the Gospels are meant uh, to teach us something about this historical Jesus. They make claims about who he is. And as soon as we hear that we've got something that's making a claim about how Jesus is, for us as modern people, it makes us skeptical, right? Oh, well, it must be biased. I will be straightforward with you. The Gospels are biased, okay? They're biased in a particular direction. They're biased in the direction of of teaching us and proclaiming the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And of course they are. If the gospel writers, if the people who wrote these books believed that Jesus was more than a man, that he was somehow bringing the kingdom of God, they would have to proclaim that to us, wouldn't they? And what I I wanna remind you is that bias is not a bad thing. Bad biases are bad. That's true in the way that we live our everyday lives. That we all have biases in ways that we are prone to seeing the world, that's not a bad thing, that's reality. And the gospels that we have bring us a perspective of Jesus that introduce us to him as a historical figure and as, and as more than that, as God himself. Their history with a purpose. And we could talk a lot about those gospels and whether or not what they're revealing to us is true. And what I wanna say to you is that when you take a step back and look at the gospels in comparison with other ancient literature, what you find is that we have documents here that are unparalleled in their reliability. That most scholars think that the gospels themselves were written somewhere in the first century AD. So within the first few decades after Jesus lived, which is pretty remarkable that we've got these first-hand accounts, first-hand accounts that are written within 50 to 60 years of when Jesus lived and, and did his ministry on this earth. Now, just indulge me here for a minute, okay, as someone who is really interested in this kind of historical stuff. Uh, the earliest P 
pieces of manuscripts of those gospels that we have show up from the year roughly 125 AD. So while we don't have the original, like the, the manuscript of Mark as Mark wrote it, what we have is fragments of those manuscripts and we have fragments of those manuscripts that were written uh, less than, a, that were copied less than 100 years after the original was written. Guys, if you study kind of ancient literature, that is bananas. That never happens. When we look at other kind of comparable pieces of literature that, pro- that were produced during that time, our earliest copies of those manuscripts date from like the 10th century. The Gospels, those historical documents, are incredibly reliable. We have a, an entire manuscript of the book of John from the year 175 AD. That's amazing. And what it points us to, what it gives us confidence, is that what we are reading here when we open our Bibles is a translation of, of the books as they existed when they were originally written down. Now, you may be able to admit that that's true and not believe that Jesus is who the Gospels claim he is. Fair enough. But I'm sharing all this just to highlight for us that the Jesus that we're talking about worshiping, the Jesus that we're talking about here, it is possible for us to know him. This is not like a History Channel show, okay? You know, where there's some obscure line from a Norse diary that got unearthed somewhere and there's a whole show built around this one. Does anyone, no one else watches the History Channel? Okay, that's not what we're talking about is a whole life built around a a, a stray line or a crazy theory. No, we have uh, solid, reliable, documented evidence of Jesus of Nazareth as a person. And what that forces us to do is to wrestle with the claims that are in those gospels. Do you believe them? Why? Why not? And what we find is that so often what we bring to the text is our own presuppositions. That if what you bring to the story of Jesus is your conviction that God never intervenes in the world, then the gospels are gonna look, uh, they're gonna seem hard to believe. But that's an assumption that you are bringing from your own world to the text. That if what you bring to the text instead is this belief that it is perhaps possible that God would step down and intervene in history, oh, now suddenly they open up in a whole new way. And the case that these gospels are making, that scripture makes from the beginning to the end, that it makes throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus of Nazareth, this historical person, is the linchpin of history. That he's the pivot point. The question is, what are you gonna do with those claims? So we've gotta talk about then, what are the claims, right? So we've talked about Jesus. Then we're going to talk about Christ, his only son. Okay, so first thing, we've got to clarify about the word Christ here. Um, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Contrary to what you might think. Christ is actually a title. So the way that, a title, like, uh, like when you call someone doctor, like we have a friend who we call Dr. Sam. We call her Dr. Sam because she's a doctor, right? Uh, doctor is her title. And a title is kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like a box. Wow. I feel like I'm back in middle school drawing 3D drawings. Okay, so it's a box. That's a box, right? Yeah, okay. And what you do with a title is you put all kinds of things into the, into the, the box of the title. So you, for example, you put uh, expectations. 
You might put hopes. So this is why if you, someone has the title of doctor, you've got expectations about what that means. So when you meet them at a party and they say, I'm a doctor, you say, hey, can you look at this scab on my leg, right? Because you have expectations about what that title means. Okay, well, the title that we have in this passage, or the title that we're talking about here in the confession is the title Christ. So we've got to ask, well, what are the things that go into this title? And we've got some of them. They, some of them show up in this passage. The first, thing we're gonna, the first one that we're going to talk about is actually not in this passage, but it's son, <laughs> son of David, okay? That's one of the, one of the expectations or the hopes uh, that was put into this, this title of Christ, and we see that all throughout the Gospels, right? We studied this in Jesus' life when we talked about Bartimaeus. There's this blind guy, and when Jesus walks by, Bartimaeus cries out, have mercy on me, son of David, right? But this was a title that people attributed that connected with this idea of Jesus being the Christ, Christ meaning Messiah or anointed one, him being the son of David. Because way back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to this king of Israel whose name was David. And what God told to this king is that there would always be one of his sons sitting on the throne of Israel. Well, then you fast forward a couple hundred years and the nation of Israel is being oppressed by the Romans and there's no king. There's no Hebrew king sitting on the throne. And so the people are expecting, they're hoping, they're wondering, when is the son of David gonna come? When is the Christ gonna come? So one of the expectations that's put into this title of Christ is the son of David. But that is not the title that Jesus uses for himself. We find the title that Jesus most often uses for himself in this passage. He calls himself the Son of Man. Fun fact, okay? The, the phrase Son of Man is used 84 times in the Gospels. 81 of those times, it's recorded as being on the lips of Jesus himself. So other people don't call Jesus the son of man. Jesus calls himself the son of man. And when he does that, Jesus is pulling on an Old Testament scripture. Surprise, right? An Old Testament scripture from the book of Daniel. And this is what uh, Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14 say when it's speaking about the son of man. It says, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that be God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So you see that this, this promise of a, of a king that was coming, a son of David, and the way that people thought about that as political uh, political freedom or deliverance, it's not that their belief in this was too, that their hope was too large, it's that it was too small. And what Jesus is claiming about himself as the son of man is he's saying, I have come to bring a kingdom that is qualitatively different from what you expect. That what the people were hoping for and expecting was political deliverance. They wanted a savior who could deliver them by political means, which I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you, right, for the way that we're living. And Jesus says, I've got something that's bigger than that for you. That I'm ushering in a kingdom that will be an eternal kingdom, that will be for all people, that will be over all time. 
And this is what the historical Jesus claimed to be about. This is how the historical Jesus described himself. That what he believed about himself is that he was accomplishing in and through his life the bringing of this new, of this new kingdom. And if Jesus can't back that up, uh, I'm sure that the DSM has a word for that, right? That our manual of psychological uh, issues could tell us what is it when someone claims to be something that they're not and believes it and acts out of it, has these delusions of grandeur. We've got to ask, is this true, right? Can he back up his claims to be the son of man? Well, one of the things, one of the, one of the ways that we see those claims backed up is that God the Father attests to them. That Jesus has a witness who says, those things are true. It happens in verse five of this passage, that God the Father speaks in this moment where the cloud kind of covers this mountain that Jesus is on with his disciples. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. This box is getting very full, right? What he's saying is that Jesus is the son of God. That he confirms from heaven this exalted identity of Jesus. And all throughout the New Testament, uh, the writers of the New Testament build on this claim that Jesus is the son of God. They help us understand what it means. That what what is happening here in this text when God says this is my when God the Father says this is my beloved son is that he's claiming he's explaining to us that Jesus this historical figure has a unique relationship with God the Father Colossians 1 describes the relationship like this this is how it describes Jesus as the son of God it says he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But that is who the scriptures claim Jesus to be as the son of God. And as all of those things, that he is worthy of our worship. So Matthew 28, 17 tells us that when the disciples gather before the ascension, when Jesus ascends into heaven, they they worship him. That is a radical statement. When you consider the background that these men were coming from, these men and women were coming from, that they were God-fearing Jews who were radical, who were violent in their conviction that there was only one God and there was only one God to be worshiped. That worship of any other gods was totally inappropriate and out of the question. And now, all of a sudden, these very same people are worshiping Jesus? 
What that means is from the very beginnings of Christianity that the people who were following Jesus believed that he was worthy of worship, which is to say they believed that he was God. That he was in his very nature, in his very essence, God himself. Him, Jesus of Nazareth, this historical person that they believed he was worthy of worship because in his being he was God himself. And yet... When he came to earth, it's not as if uh, there was a uh, sorry, gone to lunch, be back soon sign put up in heaven, right? That heaven did not become empty when God came to earth. In fact, in in the text that we're in, God says to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That what that tells us is there is God the father and there is God the son. And while they share the same being, that they are different persons. So one God, the same in being, the same in essence, and yet comprised of three persons, the Father and the Son who we see here and the Holy Spirit who they talk about later. And so this term of Son is not about, uh, it doesn't, it's not meant to teach us the origin of Jesus, it's meant to teach us about the relationship that has always existed in, in amongst God himself. We would call that the Trinity, right? So we see that this creed from the very beginning is a Trinitarian statement. One God and three persons. Okay, now we could talk about the implications of the Trinity for a long time, right? There are books and books and books that have been written on that. For example, this is one of my favorite implications of the Trinity, is that it is the only way that we can actually say that God is himself love. Because if God has not always existed in multiple persons, in three persons, how could we say that God is love? Because there would be a time where God had no one to love. Wow. (laughs) But that because God has always existed in relationship with himself, we can say with confidence that God is love. Frederick Buechner says it like this, the Trinity is also a way of saying something about God and the way he is within himself. That God does not need creation in order to have something to love because within himself, love happens. In other words, the love of God is not love as a noun, but as a verb. The verb is reflexive as well as transitive. That our God is a God of love. What it also means is that this Jesus of history, the Christ, the only Son of God, that he has the authority to be our Lord. That he, by his very nature, by his very being, is Lord, is master over all of the earth, over all of creation. Philippians 2 says it like this. It says, there is a day that is coming And on that day, when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's true because Jesus is Lord. The question for us is not, is Jesus Lord? It's not, will we give Jesus authority as if we could give Jesus authority over anything? The question is, will we recognize the authority that Jesus has been given by God the Father? Jesus is Lord. 
And if we're going to be people who follow Jesus, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, part of what we have to confess is that Jesus is our Lord. I'm going to talk for a minute about the difference between stated and functional beliefs, right? It's possible to say that you believe a lot of things. It's another thing to live it. Like, I can say that a budget is a very important thing to have, right? I can talk all day about why that is necessary and why it's important to be a saver over a spender, la, 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 la. But here's the question. Does my life reflect that? Do I choose to live within my budget? It's a work in progress, okay? What I'm saying is there's often a difference between our stated belief and our functional belief. And our hope and our desire as Christians is that when we say Jesus is Lord, that that would be matched by the way that we live our lives. They would be functionally true of us. And that we are called as, as, as people who recognize the authority of Jesus, what else could we do but submit our entire lives to him? That if there is a person who has come amongst us who is God himself, and who desires to speak with us, how could we not say to him, yes, Lord, speak to me? That's why the Father says, listen to him. Not just listen to him like hear him in, your, in the, the faculty of your ear, but obey him. That we would come with our full selves, that we would say, Lord, uh, tell me what to think. But don't just tell me what to think, Lord, tell me how to think. Teach me, Lord, form my mind in a way that is in accordance with who you are and how you would tell me to live. Oh, Lord, here's my heart. Here are my affections. Lord, uh, what would you have me love? That we would bring to him our, our will. That we would say, Lord, how would you have me act? C.S. Lewis talks about, talks about it like this. He says, imagine yourself living in a house and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on and you knew those jobs needed doing and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live at it himself. That to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus is to come in and to say to him, Lord, renovate my life. In all of who I am, this is all submitted to you. And friends, you know this. That can be a painful process, can't it? Are you guys with me? Are you awake this morning? Can that be a painful process? Yes. If that process is never painful, um, that may be because you are not actually submitting your life to Jesus. Because he is doing a work in you that is far beyond what you can ask or imagine. He's making you into someone far more beautiful than you can even, th that you can dream of. And that work is hard, it's painful work as he challenges our assumptions, what we think, how we feel, and how we live. And it is a good work. 
a work that as it is done to us and in us that we can delight in. I love in this passage that God the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Because the listening, it is not less than obedience. It certainly involves obedience, and yet it's, it's more than that. But if your whole Christian life is about avoiding the things that God says to not do, you're living too small. Because our Jesus is on the move. He is at work in the world. That's what he tells his disciples in verse nine. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That our Jesus came to earth, this historical person, this Christ, the Son of, the only Son of God, he came uh, on a mission with a purpose. And that purpose was that through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, that he would be redeeming a people for himself, that he would be restoring all things, that this kingdom that is promised, that he's bringing as the son of David, as the son of man, that that kingdom is coming, and it's coming even now. It's coming in you, and it's coming through you out into the world, and that he invites us, and he commands us to be a part of it with him, and being a part of that with him is about so much more than just avoiding certain behaviors that we get to participate in that as we ask the Lord on a day-to-day basis, Jesus, what do you have for me today? We've talked about here uh, that we want to be a come and see community. We talk about all the different ways that we can do that. Here's the thing that one of the things, one of the things that's really hard about that is that being a part of a community like that involves listening to Jesus, doesn't it? Because you're not going to open your Bible and see a verse that says, today, you should ask your coworker how he feels about God. Oh, great, I'll just say yes to that today. No, that's not going to happen, right? That as you are submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus, you've got to be listening and ask, Lord, how are you asking me to live in response to the people around me today? How are you asking me to love the people around me today? And I will tell you, when you start doing that, all bets are off. Things that are hard to explain are going to start happening. Things that may bring suffering into your life in ways you didn't imagine will start happening. Because the kingdom of God is coming and it's at work. I've been incredibly curious about these weird Nashville signs that are popping up around town. Have you seen these? Like maybe if you get to the interstate by going down Ellington and then Spring Street and then onto the... Do you guys ever get on the interstate that way? And there are all of these yard signs that have rules on them, like do not honk, right? Or, um, or what's one of the other ones? Uh, respect your neighbor's traditions. There are also billboards that are up around town. Has anybody else seen these things? Okay, I was gonna say, otherwise the illustration is totally lost. Okay, so uh, what I w- I've looked into what this campaign is. But basically, it was funded by some mystery person who has a ton of money. He was really interested in, in creating community in Nashville. And you realize what this, what this person did is created a creed. The creed is, we are Nashville, as a statement of belief, right? And then what this person did is work out, uh, this is what I think that creed means when it's lived out in the world. It means don't honk. Okay. It means honor your neighbor's traditions. Okay. It means don't ask Nashville to change for you. 
This is what this person's interpretation of the creed means. It's, it's how this person is asking us to live in response to the creed. And as I was, as I was researching this whole kind of project, what I found is that it's also a project of photojournalism. So you can look up the We Are Nashville website. And they brought in, I don't know, this world-renowned photographer to go around and just take pictures in Nashville for months. And one of the pictures on the site that captured me this week and it was a picture of two men standing over a hospital bed and they were praying. And they were praying for this older woman uh, who looked like she was on death's door. And this is how the picture is described. It says, Jimmy Jensen prays with friend Michael Dotson for Dotson's dying mother, Judy, at Centennial Hospital, Nashville, March 2018. It was a sign of the new life Jensen has carved out for himself in Nashville. A convicted criminal enforcer once facing decades behind bars, Jensen now uses his hands for tender things. He has become a chaplain. Jimmy and Michael became friends at Safe Harbor, a West Nashville neighborhood halfway house for men transitioning from jail back to free life. And Jimmy was a resident of Safe Harbor only a year prior following his release from prison. Within months, Jimmy was serving as a lay chaplain at Safe Harbor. Less than a year later, Jimmy was released as a resident and brought out as a part-time chaplain. After only six months following his release, he was out of the halfway house and had full custody of his two young daughters, Victoria and Rose. A miracle, he said but also evidence of his resolve to keep living, right? That Jimmy's story is the story of a man whose life is being lived under the lordship of Jesus. The lordship of a loving Jesus who came to him, who found him, and who was changing him, who was making him more every day into the image of himself. Jimmy said it's easy to get into routine and ignore other people's needs. But part of how he lives right, he said, is to keep himself open to serving others. Jimmy likes to ask people a question. He says, he says he asks, what does your ministry look like? And he asks himself the same question. It's easy to talk about helping people, he said, but actually helping someone requires that you take action. And when someone calls you in the middle of the night, you have to ask yourself, what does my ministry look like? When someone calls you in the middle of the night, he says, he, and, tells you they're, and tells you they're falling apart, they need someone to come and sit with them, you have to ask yourself, what does my ministry look like? So when Michael phoned and said he needed someone, Jimmy didn't hesitate. His daughters understand, he said. They have backup with good neighbors who call each other to look after each other's children. Judy died a few days later, but Michael hung on thanks to a friend answering the call to come when asked. That what this photojournalist is filtering for us is the story of a man who was asking Jesus, uh, Lord, what do you have for me today? Who is saying to God the Father, I'm listening. And the journalist is putting in all of these kind of words that are distant from God. 
but what you can hear here is a man who is saying, I am responding to the Father's call in my life. I'm responding to the Lordship of Jesus as I go out and, and live in response to that in my world. And friends, that is the adventure that we have been called on together. That's the adventure that we are living out here together. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna worship God. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we are thankful uh, that you have come to us. Come to redeem us, Lord, that as the only son of the Father, that what you have for us uh, is love and that what you've invited us to do is to come and to listen to you, to be shaped by you, to be transformed by you and to live out that love to the people around us. Would you show us what it means to walk on that this week? And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.